Field Notes brand, USA-made memo books and other products, including seasonal limited editions. Visit fieldnotesbrands.com or 400 North May in Chicago. It is the Industry Interactive Podcast, featuring industry-centric interviews, discussions, and more with the premier minds in the creative arts and industries. My name is Haima Black. I host this podcast at dynastypodcast.com. This week, music industry legend Seymour Stein in an interview recorded at Music Dealers in Chicago. Here's how that sounds. Haima Black here at Music Dealers, and I'm here with Seymour Stein, um, Warner Brothers Records VP and co-founder of Sire Records. How are you doing today? Um, uh, could be better. I mean, I've just uh, I've flown in to do this uh, Lake FX uh, thing, uh, and uh, I brought my daughter and my youngest granddaughter with me, you know, just because uh, they'd never been to Chicago. And um, you know, it's, it's great, I love Chicago. I mean, it's, uh, it's vibrant, it's, it's, it's always been, and it's always been about music. I mean, I know, I'm sure some of you know, because they're, everyone knows chess records, and most people know uh, VJ records and uh, Mercury, but there are a lot of other things about, about Chicago that um, make it so special in music that, um, you know, it's um, really, 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 really important. I mean, they talk about Detroit. I mean, and nothing against Detroit. I love, you know, but uh, Chicago was there first, and Chicago is far more important. I mean, just in blues, um, it's the repository. I mean, it's almost like a sacred thing. Uh, blues music, Chicago, you know, it's... It's in other places too, but you know, whenever people think of blues, you know, and it's an important part of music, especially when you're feeling a little blue, it's Chicago. It's a great music city. What are some of your personal memories of Chicago, you know, either professionally, personally, just your time here? I started coming here when I was very young. Um, mentoring is very important, and I was blessed. I had some of the greatest mentors. I. I went up to Billboard when when I was 13 years old from school to, just to learn about the business by reading their bound volumes. And Paul Ackerman, the music editor, who's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, became one of my early mentors. And Tom Noonan, who was the chart director, who I wound up work, working for. But everybody came up to Billboard and uh, that's where I met Leonard Chess, among other people. But um, I, I think that um, the main person that, and also Ahmed Erdogan and Jerry Wexler, and, uh, but it was a guy from Ohio, but not Chicago, Cincinnati, Sid Nathan, King Records, which was a, a country label, an R&B label. James Brown and Hank Ballard in the Midnighters are probably the, um, the, the names you might remember most, but um, he took me under his wing, and he had a branch here in Chicago, not, you know, r right right down on Michigan Avenue, near Tress and uh, near all the other labels, near VJ, and uh, the label Wonderful and Marvelous Records, and, and uh, I used to go to Chicago a lot. They had a little studio, a tiny little studio, but they recorded some of the best records there by, by uh, Freddie King, 
um, among others. And, um, you know, so, um, no, that, that, those are my earliest memories. I would stay in the, the, the Conrad Hilton Hotel in a, a, a room <laughs> the size of a toilet. And it, it was no, nothing. I mean, it, it meant so much to me just to be here. It's, you know, and look, you know, I don't come from a small town. I come from, you know, the music capital of the world, New York, and it is. I mean, no offense, please, but um, <laughs> but Chicago is fucking amazing. It really is, and still is, and always will be. Now, you know, you mentioned working in the music industry since you were 13 years old, and I think it's very easy to I, I 14. I came up there. I, I came up to Billboard when I was 13, did a lot of research on what was going on in the 40s and early 50s. And, um, you know, then I finally realized, just looking out the window, that, you know, it's great that I'm doing this. It's certainly useful. But it's what's happening right out in the streets in front of me. The rock and, rock and roll was exploding. And this is all pre-rock and roll. It's good, though. Music is like a river. It's good to know where it's been flowing before, you know, all the way back, you know. And um, so, um, you know, I didn't waste my time. But then they offered me a job after school, and I would come from deep inside of Brooklyn, um, almost near Coney Island, where my school was, which is almost Lafayette High School, and uh, take the train up. Uh, and uh, my parents were just scratching their heads, you know, Jewish family, they expected me to be a doctor or a lawyer. When my sister started getting serious with a pharmacist, then she said, you know, you could be a pharmacist also. And, uh, but <laughs> that's okay too. But, um, but music was in my veins, you know, and that's all I wanted to do. Well, you know, something I was gonna, going to ask is, is, you know, coming from the music side of things from such an early age, it's, it's easy to see that so many things have changed, but what are some of the things that have stayed the same? What are some of the constants in the music business, you know, where it doesn't matter what decade it is, it's always going to be that way? Well, I think, and you would know the answer better than me, you, I think that uh, no matter what era it is, as some, are, some are better than others, I would think. Naturally, I think my era, you know, when, when I first discovered rock and roll is the best. But I think basically, give or take two years in either direction, the music that, that you hear and love when you're 13 years old is the music that stays with you most all, all your life. Um, and that's the way it, it, it's been with me. I keep falling back to those great R&B records. It also includes the, the, not only the, the years that you know, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Little Richard, Sam Cooke, my idols, James Brown, Ray Charles Broke. It's also Elvis who played, to me, a very important role. I mean, rock and roll is really a hybrid and uh, of many things and continues to be because it continues to change. But in my day, the main ingredients were rhythm and blues and country and western. And Elvis was like to me, a Joshua figure from the Bible, he broke down all those walls and, and, and rock and roll was born. And this is a guy that never wrote a song in his life and uh, was taken advantage of by, by his manager 
and um, but did have some good, honest people around him. His publisher, the the guy who picked the songs for him, but uh, for the most part, uh, not. And he still is probably the most important figure, you know, certainly in the early days of rock and roll. So you have such a history with discovering new talent and signing new talent. What do you look for in talent? What have you always, you know, what catches your attention? To me, the root of music is the song. And uh, that's, what, that's what I look for first. You know, people can learn how to sing. People can learn to sing better. Some people have incredible voices to start out with. And that's certainly a, a, a great benefit. Um, you know, but, but it's, it's the songs. Um, in Madonna, what, what I saw, which is rare, I mean, to the extent that she had it, was determination, but such strong, I mean, every, everybody, you know, is determined, but, you know, she would kill, I mean, if she had to. She wanted it that bad, you know, you know, she, she was 24 years old, but in her mind, she was on the verge of going over the hill, and look at her, she, she looks so fucking fantastic now. I just saw her, you know, with that fall she took, which I think was, fake because of the lyrics of the song, but I, I, I don't know. I haven't spoken to her since. You know, I still speak to her and her manager, but um, in most people, you know, with Talking Heads, it was the songs. With the Ramones, it was the songs. With the Pretenders, it was the songs. With the Pesh Mode, it was the songs, and a little more, because those types of bands in England uh, were, not, were not good live. But Depeche Mode were, they had a, you know, in my mind, I mean, it's just my viewpoint, uh, you know, and, um, you know, it, it, it's everything, but, and everything is important, but without the songs, forget about it. Is that why you think certain artists have been able to endure? I mean, Madonna is obviously an example, but you see so many artists that come out with a lot of flash and not as much substance, and they go away, it well, seems uh, much quicker. Mean, you know, I mean... There, there, are, there are ills that befall certain artists, you know, on the way up. People, you know, that could never happen to Madonna because she's so strong-willed, you know. But people get in trouble, and that, that's a sad thing. But um, Madonna, uh, on her own, is quite a good songwriter, but she also, you know, is, is able to lure in great songwriters as collaborators with her. And it's it's done them very, you know, it's it's certainly done them a lot of good. Uh, she's helped a lot of people. I mean, I, I, I remember the, the very first tour, uh, she insisted on taking the Beastie Boys out with her, and everyone advised her against it, you know. Um, I didn't think it was a good idea, but I didn't open my mouth, because the live end is really not, you know, you, you know, and I, 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 I believed, by that time, I believed in her so much that I figured it's not going to be a train wreck. Uh, but it almost was. I mean, they, uh, they got booed off the stage, all it's, you know, they, they, you know, and all of that. But look, the Beastie Boys have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, you know it, it's, um, she was right, you know. She may have been ahead of her time, but, you know, I, not to brag, you know, I, I, I've, I've been ahead of my time a lot too, 
uh, I almost had to be. I never was working with, uh, you know, a whole lot of money. I had to sign things for very small amounts of money, whether it was Madonna. I mean, I'm embarrassed to tell you what I signed her for, but I will tell you. I mean, it's public knowledge, $15,000 for her first recordings. Um, the Ramones, you know, to make the record, $6,000 and $6,500 to buy instruments with. The Talking Heads was a, a, a little bit more, you know, um, the Pretenders was, but not, not any of the kind of deals that were going on at the time. And you know, a lot of times, if you give a, a band or an artist too much money, it's very, very bad, especially at a major label. It, I, I mean, it's bad at a small label because the small labels don't really have that kind of money. But at a major label, they sign so many artists and they, they see, um, you know, a, a, an artist, they don't make it the first record. They even think about, they don't care if it's a two album deal. They say, look, uh, you know, let's negotiate out of this deal and, uh, and all that. It, it, it can be poison, you know, and I'm not, I, I, you know, I, I'm not just, just saying this, you know, to try to make cheap deals with people. But um, I've, I've, never, I've never made it a super big deal. I've also never, almost never, signed established artists. I did it twice, uh, actually in a way three times, but really twice. Lou Reed came to me after his you know, career had stumbled. And you know, we're both from Brooklyn. He was a month old. I mean, he, he looks five years younger than me, you know, but he, he was a, a month older than me, we're from the same neighborhood. And I loved him, you know, and, and I made a record. And New York, is that album brought back his career. Uh, one of my uh, producers, in, you know, brought me Brian Wilson. You know, everybody in Columbia, in, in California, have a love affair with, with Brian Wilson and throughout many other parts of, of, of the world. I mean, you know, the Beatles readily admit they, they took they, what an influence he was and everything. And he was making a solo, he wanted to make a solo album. He was under the influence of that crazy doctor, Dr. Landy, and we made this record, Love and Mercy. Love and Mercy is the name of this new album, a new movie that's coming out, which, which I haven't seen. Uh, it opens in a few days, I think. And uh, those are the only two established artists that, that, I, that I've ever, ever really worked with. I made one record just as a favor because I idolize him so much, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. And, uh, you know, that was a pleasure too. We did it down in Memphis, um, you know, at the Arden Studios. But, um, you know, anyway, I, think, I hope I'm not getting off the track No, here. no, no, this is, this is great. When you began working with so many of these, you know, notable kind of iconic artists now, but, you know, at the very beginning of their careers, how did you foster those relationships? You know, I, I think we've, you know, it's been told a few times how you signed Madonna, but then what was the next step after that? How did she, you know, how did you build that relationship? How did you build the relationship with the Ramones? Well, well Madonna first. Yeah, I signed Madonna, you know, the, 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 I signed her in my hospital. I was in the hospital then, and I signed her. She came to the hospital, and that was a great indication. I had heard that um, 
Chris Blackwell, who I have the greatest respect for, to my great friend, Island Records, was sniffing around, you know, around Madonna. Actually, he turned her down, but um, which, you know, surprised me. But it didn't make me feel, oh my God, Chris Blackwell turned her down. Maybe I made a mistake, but this was all before. So I said, look, I, I'm in the hospital. I had uh, a thing called endocarditis. And in those days, the only way you could treat it was 28 days on a penicillin drip. I was halfway through it. I said, you know, a lot can happen in two weeks. She could go somewhere else. So I, I was, you know, in, laying around in those hospital pajamas with a slit up the back. I hadn't shaved. I had not, I, I don't know, I probably bathed, but I don't, I don't even want to remember that. So I had, I, I had uh, my, I had a barber friend who came over and cut my hair and sh actually shaved me too. Um, I uh, took a bath, a uh, shower or bath. Um, my secretary came over with some nice pajamas and everything. She walked into the room and I tell you, there's nothing bad about her. This actually is good about her. She couldn't care if I was, you know, like Sarah Bernhardt lying, you know, on a, a, a bed like she always did, you know, uh, and it, she just wanted a deal, you know, and I saw that in her. And, um, you know, not that I, you know, I offered her any less because I saw she wanted a deal, but I knew that this was a deal that could be done. And it was done right in that hospital room. And, um, and, and I said to go see a lawyer. I gave her three names of lawyers and I said, you go to whoever you want. That doesn't have to be one of those three. But, um, you know, and uh, th none of these people were particularly friends of mine or enemies, but they would, you know, I wouldn't, you know. And actual fact, she wound up going to a, a friend of mine in the end, Alan Grubman, but I never gave her that name. And, um, you know, Two days later, she's ready to sign. You know, she was she was more anxious than me, and uh, she just wanted to jumpstart, and 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 that that was it. And um, you know, that's you know what I saw in her. Now with the Ramones, it was totally different. I had heard the buzz on the Ramones, but in those days, I was spending a lot of time checking out England. You know, so I had a lot of big English artists, and I was trying to build that whole thing up. Um, and I could I don't know how much time I have. I mean, I don't want you to get bored. But the reason I believed in England was because EMI controlled over 50% of the UK market. I mean, to me, it's still hard for me to believe that this record company, which was the greatest record company that ever existed. I mean, someday I'll give you a speech about EMI, which I, I mean, I, I, I love it. You know, it's so sad what happened to it. Decca controlled almost 30% of the of the business, another major. And uh, then there was Philips who had just come in, but with big money from Holland. They were the Dutch company. They changed their name to Phonogram and then Polygram and all that. And there was just a handful of Indies. And um, I sought out the Indies and w w was working, you know, working with them. 
and, um, you know, but also, because we had very little money, I, I knew that EMI, I had a relationship with EMI because EMI distributed King in, outside of the United States and Canada. And uh, Capital put out very little of the, of, of the music that, um, that, that, that they were offered by EMI. They were, said, you know, they were very resentful that their company had been bought by EMI. Their, their company had been started by geniuses. I mean, uh, two Hall of Fame songwriters, you know, uh, Johnny Mercer being one of them and Buddy De Silva being the other, and the largest retailer in, in uh, you know, uh, Los Angeles, the guy that owned Music City. And so that they hated, that they felt like, you know, this was like the Revolutionary War all over again. Uh, they turned down the Beatles, not once, but twice. They turned down Love Me Do, and then, you know, they said, look, this record is much better than the new record, She Loves You, and we don't want it. So Love Me Do was given to a company right here in Chicago, VJ Records, and VJ was hot with, uh, at the time, they had the Four Seasons as well, um, but they didn't, they didn't pay their royalties, and on a loophole, uh, not that there were many royalties to pay on the Beatles, they got out of the contract. So their, man, their lawyer, the EMI's American lawyer, who just died about five years ago, he's a, one of the smartest, a guy called Paul Marshall, he said, I'll, I'll get this band on Capitol. He calls up Dick Clark. Dick Clark, who come across as, you know, a clean, you know, you know, he was the biggest crook there was. <laughs> I mean, he owned his own label in Philadelphia, plus a piece of every label in Philadelphia. So Paul Marshall says to him, look, no advance, a low royalty. I want you to put this record out and break it, and, but you can't have any follow-ups because what I'm trying to do is, is get capital interested. And it was She Loves You, it happened, and then from I Want to Hold Your Hand onward, all the records went back to capital. So I figured they were still doing this, and they were, and uh, I, I was able to pick up some great, great music from EMI. Uh, I don't know if you would know any of these bands, but Renaissance, um, you know, uh, the Climax Blues Band and, and, and others like that. And eventually, all their companies in Europe started sending me stuff, and I was able to pick up a band called Focus, a Dutch band, and that was my first minion-selling single and album. Hocus Pocus was the name of the single. And uh, so I don't know how I got off on this tangent, but, um, but anyway... Um, where, where did I, where, I forgot where, I, I wasn't prepared for this. I mean, I think, I hope I'm, I'm doing, no, I, this is, this I hope I'm doing okay. But, um, but the thing is that, um, you know, you, can, you, you don't know where you're gonna find things. I, I started also hanging out with the Indies in, in, in England, and I met a, a guy, Martin Mills, who is today the biggest Indie in the world. 
Beggars Group. He owns part of Rough Trade now. And I, I, I did a deal with him for the cult. And, uh, you know, I also met Daniel Miller. And um, I, this is a true story. I mean, it'll sound nuts, but it's a true story. Um, I had put out two records by Daniel Miller that he was the artist himself on. I was so impressed with him. Um, the, the best of them was this single, Warm Leatherette and TVOD, you, you know, by The Normal. I don't know if any of you probably wouldn't remember. So I woke up early, I, I woke up late today, but I woke up early one morning um, and I'm reading the New Musical Express, or, or maybe it was Melody Maker that had just come in, and there's a story Daniel Miller signs real band to mute records. Uh, and then they were playing that night. I immediately, it was seven o'clock in the morning, I called up, I had to pay about $10,000 to get a round trip ticket. Uh, maybe I only bought it one way in a cheap return, but I don't remember, but on the Concord to get there in time, I had somebody meet me and drive me up to their hometown, which is Basildon, and uh, I saw them and I signed them like right on the spot, Depeche Mode. And out of Depeche Mode also came uh, Erasure and Yazoo and so much more. And um, I also met the head of Rough Trade, Jeff Travis, and through him, I got the Smiths. Um, you know, he found them. He says, Seymour, there's this band that I'm in love with. The only one thing is, you're gonna love him even more than me. I know it, I know you. I, I, you know, I heard nothing, but I believed in these people. I flew over and I signed the Smith. I, you know, and, and I don't know whether he was trying to impress me or show me that he, he was arrogant or whatever, but Morrissey was kept throwing these gladiolas in my face and hitting me. You know, it was, uh, he could have done some damage there. But, uh, you know, but look, I've, I've, I've had, I could go on and on and on. I've had a magnificently great, you know, for a guy with no real, t I can't play an instrument, um, you know, or, um, you know, but I think in some ways it helps because uh, I don't listen, you know, for perfection. I, I listen for things that catch people. There's, there's, if I could tell one more, do I have any more time? I mean, or you, you talk, well, I'll, I'll tell you uh, the, the, this, this story. Along the way, I helped these kids, these two brothers start a label uh, called Blue Horizon Records. And the, the first thing they did, this was a great, brilliant producer, Mike Vernon. He was producing Eric Clapton and uh, John Mayall and uh, 10 Years After and Savoy Brown, all for Decca. And, um, you know, John Mayall, people would line up to join his band. Uh, Eric Clapton left the pop group to join him. I mean, which was, is the opposite progression. Uh, but anyway, so in one week, uh, John McVie, uh, Mick Fleetwood and Peter Green all left and, and Mike says to them, Let, let's start, you know, Fleetwood Mac, we'll call it. We'll call it Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. That's where the songs like Albatross and Black Magic Woman came from. And um, so that's, now, 
Mike still was working at DECA at the time while running the label and producing Savoy Brown in 10 years after, who were managed by Chris Wright and Terry Ellis, who later formed Chrysalis Records. This was a, a like a very potent time in, in the business. So I go with Mike to a thing called the Windsor Pop and Jazz Festival, but it's mostly rock music. And he brings along with him his engineer, Gus Dudgeon, who later became Elton John's producer. This is early, early, early days, late 60s, maybe very early 70s. And there's this band playing. Now, let me just say one thing before I tell you about it. I always had a complex that I couldn't play an instrument, and I tried. I'm just clumsy, you know, and uh, I couldn't play. And then my partner, Richard Goddard, who I started Sire Records with, he could play any instrument and play it adequately or great, you know, piano. And when he was in The Strange Loves, he could play African drums. He could play anything. And, you know, like uh, I, had so, I had so many complexes about it. Then here we are in, in uh, you know, at, at this gig, and um, all of a sudden this band go on, and I said, oh my God, this band is amazing. You know, what are they doing at a pop and jazz festival? They're fantastic. And I look it up, and I see that they're managed by Chris Wright and Terry Ellis, who had not founded Chrysalis Records yet, and Mike is so tight with them, he produces their bands. I couldn't wait for them to finish. And um, he says, I said, you know, Chris and Terry manage this band. You should put them on Blue Horizon. So he says to me, uh, oh, Seymour, I could never work with a flautist, ever. I didn't know what he was, I thought maybe the guy was a sex killer or so. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't know what a flautist was, you know. I mean, we call them flute players, you know, but uh, uh, so I said, to, he said, you know, I could never work with a So then I turned to Gus. I said, Gus, what'd you think of this band? I said, if Mike produces them, you'll be the engineer trying to, you know, get him on my side. So he said to me something that at the time made me feel so bad. He says, Seymour, it's obvious. You don't play a musical instrument, do you? I said, what does that have to do with this? He says, you don't play a musical instrument. I said, no, I don't. He said, well, if you did, he said, you would have heard what Mike and I heard, all the bad notes that they hit. It was, it was nauseating for me. You know, these, he went to like, you know, public school, or, you know, and, uh, but he's all right. I mean, a nice guy. So I said to him, look, I said, this isn't classical music. This isn't jazz. I said, this is rock and roll, you know, and they wouldn't. It, it, of course, you, you, you know, uh, I mean, it, it was um, the, the band that started Crystal. They couldn't get anybody to sign them, and it's the band that started uh, Chrysalis Records. Um, you know, uh, Ian, um, you, you know, oh, what? Jethro Tull? Yes, and, and that, it was Jethro Tull. So, uh, I'm, I'm, look, I'm still friendly. Mike and I are still very friendly with him. And I'm friendly with, 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 they've sold Chrysalis. I'm still friendly with both of the partners. But uh, I mean, 
that, that's when I got over my, I said, you know, I'm better off that I don't play. Maybe I was taking the easy way out, but I said, you know, maybe I'm better off I don't play a musical instrument. I listen to the music, you know, not to how well it's played, you know, and so th that's it. Anyway, um, any more? I mean, any questions? Any questions? Yes, please. So I've got two questions. The first, you told me one time about the day that you signed Ice T and your experience with, you know, gangster rap. Yes, well, I'll, I'll tell you about, about that. I, it was happening right around me, but I was so busy spending so much time in England, and I had a big roster at that time, and very, I was very successful, so I missed it completely. So for the first time, I did research, and I saw that there had been no bands, no uh, artists, in rap that had come from the West Coast that had been significant in any way. So I went out there and I found a, a couple of artists and I was gonna make a, an, an album, a CD and an album of six of these artists uh, and then have an option to sign one or more of them to a long-term deal. Because admittedly, it was not a field I knew that much about, and I just, and then I heard Ice T, and I said, "Oh my God, I don't need to put out an album. I mean, this is the man, you know." And um, I signed him, and um, you know, and the rest is history. We're still very close friends. When I was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, about maybe six, seven, eight years ago, I wanted James Brown to induct me. I, I was very friendly with James. I used to go on the road with him. <clears throat> and I didn't want any of my own artists because it's like picking a, a child, you know, to, to do it. So <clears throat> James agreed to do it. And then at the last minute he got sick. It's not the sick, it, a, year, a year, a year and a half before he died, it was a false alarm. He thought he, they thought he had cancer. He, it, what killed him was something to do with his heart. And so Ice-T had campaigned to, uh, wanted to induct me. And so I called his manager, George Hinojosa, and said, if Ice isn't angry that I turned him down, I'd love him to, to induct me, you know. And then when he did, uh, you know, his own, you know, bio thing, with him and his wife, I, I played a small role in that. Ice is an amazing character. I mean, uh, I mean, he could he could have wound up in prison or even electrocuted. I mean, and he turned his life around so much. I love that man so much. I mean, he's just incredible. But uh, is so, so you said one time that it was, you knew, perhaps you knew all of a sudden it made sense because it was like- Oh yes, how I signed him. You, oh, so, you want me to tell that? So, so I came, he came to see me, you know, and he had a little bit of an attitude, you know. So he says, uh, so what do you know about, about my kind of music? I said, well, to be honest, I was late, you know, and I'm embarrassed. Um, but I, in a strange way, I have a feeling about your music that it does relate to music of the past. I said, because 
you're talking about things that, that are wrong in society, and you're almost like a newspaper. I said, do you know that there's a, a, a field of music that's been doing that for about 40 years now, it, 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 and it, it's called Calypso. Uh, I said, did you ever hear of it? I said, it comes, it comes mostly from Trinidad and the smaller islands around there. He said, no, I'm, I, I'm sorry. And he was embarrassed because, you know, it was, it, was, it, it was black music and he didn't know it. I said, don't be, don't, please don't feel bad about that. I said, I keep, I keep my best, my favorite reggae, uh, uh, reggae too, but uh, Calypso Records here. And I played him two songs. I played him Gene and Dinah, which I don't know if any of you know this music, by the Mighty Sparrow. And uh, I, I played him Sugar Boom Boom by Lord Kitchener. And all of a sudden he grabbed me and he said, we got a deal, you know, and, and that, that's, how, that's how it happened. But for, for, let me just tell you, I was in Trinidad again this year for the first time in about maybe 12 years. I mean, maybe, maybe partly because I'm, I'm, I'm out of touch, but um, maybe also uh, because it is really not as good as it was. Everything, you know, has its time. Uh, but it, there were some good songs, but I, I went d during a, a very, very good period in the, um, the late 70s, 80s. And in fact, one time, I'll tell you, um, David Byrne was having trouble writing the songs for the second album. And I said, maybe you need a little change of pace and I took him to Trinidad. When he got back, he wrote the second album in three weeks. So, um, you know, um, it's, it's a great, I don't know, have any of you been to Trinidad or any of you know anything about that kind of music? It's fabulous. Oh, you know. Where are you from? My mother's side is Barbados. Oh, Barbados, very close. But they have, diff they have spooge music there, which, is, I mean, don't attack me. Not quite in the same uh, quality. But you know, you know some some of those songs that, you, but you don't know them. You 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 know "Hot Hot Hot" by Arrow. You know, I'm sure you guys know that comes from that that area. You, you know, and uh, you know even pop hits in the '40s. "Rum and Coca-Cola" is a, is a, is a, is a calypso song. Uh, the "Banana Boat" song is a calypso song. Uh, you know, "Deo" is its other name. And Jamaica Farewell, which is a beautiful tearjerker, is also from that, that uh, you know, area. It's that long before reggae, I mean, it, it was uh, a real, uh, you know, hot spot for, you know, for music. It's different from the other colonies of the, of the British and French Empire because they, the people there had a very much higher standard of living because they had oil, they had lots of other minerals, and it was uh, it was the uh, kind of elite, even though it was half the size of Jamaica, um, it, it was uh, an elite. That, and you know, uh, that's, that's it, you know, any any questions? Any other questions? No, Daniel Levitin. Daniel Levitin. He. He's, he's, what book? This is your brain on music. This is your brain on music. He's brain on, no, I, I don't. He credits you as the book, and I just wanted to 
Am I in his book? No. <laughs> he does credit you as, as, as in his book as having helped. I don't know if you had anything to do with it. I talked, I'm sorry, look, I'm getting old, I'm getting, I mean, I'm already there. But, um, but I talk to a lot of, you know, sure. if anybody calls me, I try to find time for them. You, you know, I can't always do it, you know. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, even if it has nothing to do with what I'm doing, there are these people who live downstate uh, in, in Illinois that I think do a wonderful job uh, putting out music from a hundred years ago. It's called Archiophone. I don't know if you ever even heard of this label, but they put out the earliest of recordings. They take them off of cylinders and they take them off of, in some cases, old 78s. And um, they, they, what, you know, look, what you have to learn is, or if you don't know already, is, you know, the film business is over 100 years old, well over 100 by now. Um, radio and television, uh, you know, the 20th century. The music business has been going on forever and ever. I mean, and what people consider classical music was, was never classical music at the time. I mean, Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, these were the rock stars of their generation. You know, music goes all the way, I think music goes all the way back to the cavemen, but I, I have no proof of that. But, uh, you know, people can't live with, without music. It's just, they need a, a soundtrack. Yes? Going off of that, we're in an interesting time because people like yourself don't really exist too much in the music industry anymore where they're investing in independent talent and young talent. Um, you know, traditional A&R doesn't exist in the industry uh, when you were in charge of it. Uh, I know there's still a lot, but it's not as much as it widely recognized. What is going to be the savior of the music industry in being able to invest in independent talent? Some people in this room are going to be the saviors, uh, but mainly it's um, it, people are never going to stop writing songs. People are, are not going to stop stop wanting to perform. It, you know, some people think that this is the best of times that they're going through because for some people it is. Some people think these are horrible times because there's just a glut out there. And it's hard to it's hard to decipher. I mean, uh, I admit, you know, I mean, I I knew nothing when I was a kid, um, but I had people like Alan Freed, who um, was able to pick records for me. Some of them he was being paid to play. He went to you know he got in trouble for taking payola, but um, the you know. And, and these people, you, you know, it's, I think for somebody today, it's overwhelming. If I didn't have a good A&R guy working for me, a great assistant as well, and all these interns that, that we get from time to time, I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know, I, I'd, I'd probably go nuts. But I mean, there's, there can be too much of a good thing. And it's not all good, so that's, if it, if it was all good, you know, it would be great, but there's, it's maybe 10% really good, but, and yet you, you gotta listen to it all. Yes? The music, um, 
always been this oversaturated? Has it always been such a competitive market? Or is it now with the advent of all our streaming technologies? I, I, I think, I, to, to the best of, of, of my, not, you know, I think that, look, you, you know, you go all the way back to what, um, you know, I can think back, I'm not that old, you know, I'm old enough, but I mean, Vaudeville, you know, they introduced songs live to audiences. This is pre-radio. Billboard goes back, you know, over 100 years, well over 100 years, and their first chart uh, on music was called Music Most Heard in Vaudeville This Week. They would send their people out to check. They would also get sheets turned in by the people who put the shows together of what the songs were sung. And in some cases, different artists same, sung the same song. So a, a song could be sung two or three times at the same venue over a period of, of, of an evening. But I've, ne I've, never, seen, I've never seen it this, this busy. Um, I'm not saying it's it's a bad thing, um, you know. It's a good and a bad thing, you know. I mean, um, you can, uh, you know. I mean, it, it, it it's much too much for one man. I I, I worked a lot as a loner on my, on my own, um, or surrounded by a few people, but for people like that, it's you know going to be quite difficult. Seymour Stein here at Music Dealers. Thank you so much for taking some time. I really appreciate it. This was fantastic. Thank, thank you. I'm happy. I'm happy to do it. If I didn't have people helping me, you know, taking the time, you know, I, I don't think I'd be where I am. And I'm not being modest. So um, I'm very happy to do it. This has been the Industry Interactive Podcast. Thanks to Seymour Stein for being on the show this week. You can find more Dynasty podcasts at dynastypodcast.com. For the Dynamic Dynasty, my name is Haima Black, Dynasty Descend. <laughs>